So I want to continue this morning, at least the morning uh, Northern California time, I want to continue with the theme that I introduced last time, which is the theme of deepening daily life practice in the pandemic. And I brought up the way that a crisis can often uh, be an opportunity. We can see this sometimes personally, sometimes uh, socially, in the way that uh, we're getting clearer about a lot of uh, social issues. You can see more clearly the state of the healthcare system, certainly the the uh, the movement uh, to transform racism is really a tremendous opportunity coming out of coming out of crisis, and so there are ways in which this time of crisis can be a chance to learn, to deepen, to expand. And again, it's something that I think many of us are experiencing. I certainly hear that from a number of people. Sometimes the whole uh, area of crisis makes us ask, what's important for me? People have more time, some of them, and they're asking, how do I want to live? You know, others are experiencing difficult emotions, difficult states, and are asking, how can I be more skillful with what's coming up? All of these can be chances for, for learning. Some are called, I want to help others at this time of uh, crisis and opportunity. How can I do that? How can I do that in a way which flows from my sense of practice? And I pointed last time to the importance of having a sense of what one's next step is. This is really very, very much at the heart of our spiritual practice. It's knowing, knowing what comes next, knowing what our next steps are, having a sense of what is alive for me in the moment right now that's really calling. And part of the reason that we spend some time getting quiet is to hear what we might call that, that inner voice, the intuitive sense, oh, this has a life for me. I want to devote more time or energy here. So very crucial. So I'll come back to that. It's something we, I think, continually can do. So last time I focused on uh, deepening daily life practice and pointed to three areas and I gave a number of suggestions and the invitation was to see which of those uh, speak to you. And maybe they're one or two of them. I named a lot of them. I wasn't asking people to uh, follow all of them, but just to listen for the one or two areas of uh, practice where you might deepen, where you might, where you might keep learning. So I talked about three areas. The first was formal practice. The second was what we might call informal practice, bringing our cultivation of mindfulness, kindness, uh, compassion, skillful action into the daily flow. And then the third area was finding ways to bring our practice out more into helping others, into our work, into our service, into our activism, whatever, whatever calls. And so I mentioned a number of things in relation to formal practice that can help us to deepen. I'll briefly review some of what I said last time and then move on uh, to focus really on some very, very central uh, ways to deepen that I think are some of the most uh, powerful ways we can deepen practice. So in terms of formal practice, I mentioned that some of us may simply be wanting to have a regular practice. That could be what deepening means. Or if we have a regular practice, it might be to extend the practice in terms of, we might say, quantity of time practicing 
to have a, if we have one sitting, have a second sitting. It might be to find some very, very key way to deepen daily life practice is to find a number, maybe two or three, five or 10 minute periods during the day where you go back into a sense of being present and being mindful. It could be washing the dishes. It could be taking a walk. And it's helpful if you it's something you do every day and can be ritualized. It could be brushing your teeth. It could be putting the children to sleep. Something like that where you say, let me be really present here. And that's a way of, of connecting. It could be to have once a week uh, a Sabbath practice, a Shabbat practice, where you have one day a week or part of a day be uh, a time to devote for practice, even if it's three hours. You know, you say, let me do a sitting, take a walk, uh, maybe some reading, and you do that regularly uh, every week. That will deepen practice. Could be to work with a particular teaching, work with a mentor, a teacher. A lot of different ways to do that. So then we can also deepen our informal practice, our way of bringing the practice into the daily flow. We could have more awareness during the activities, like I mentioned earlier, uh, taking a walk, doing the dishes, you know, uh, could be in speaking, listening, you know, uh, uh, could be having more body awareness as we're listening. You could do that even right now as you're listening. Can you be present? Can I be present as I'm speaking? Can I be present in my body in some way and aware and not simply using my conceptual function as I speak? Can you do something similar as you listen? <clears throat> and then we might also want to deepen our practice in terms of our service, our work, our uh, activism, if we're doing that. And again, I'm mentioning all of these, not to say do all of these, but rather what are the one or two which when you hear them have life for you? That's what I'm aiming for, you know? Uh, so we may want to ask the question, how can I help a world in need? What calls me? Is there an issue where I really want to devote time and energy? You know, uh, we may be inspired by the figure in Buddhist tradition of the Bodhisattva who combines inner awakening with outer service and help with others. It's a beautiful, beautiful model. And you can see that all of this points to what we might call a broadened sense of practice in which our practice can go into all these different areas ultimately. I think as we stay with practice over time, there are ways that we might over time be called to all three of those areas and to really, uh, really work on those areas. Uh, but in a given time, it might be one of them. I know for myself, in my first three years of what I call practice, I was primarily focusing on my formal practice and having that be regular. And that was my main focus for several years. You know, and then I remember a later time, one of my friends said, Donald, you're a good practitioner. But when you talk, anything can come out. You know, are you really practicing and present when you're talking? And she, I think she said it in a way that was a little more judgmental, <laughs> maybe like Donald, you're not practicing wise speech. And, you know, and I said, probably said, hmm, you know, or something like that. But in any case, uh, I thought on reflection, I thought she was right, actually. And it helped me to shift my practice. So the feedback of friends and colleagues and so forth can be very, very helpful, even if it's not phrased perfectly. Very, very crucial. So uh, I think that broad sense of practice is really crucial. Uh, very commonly, and again, this may make sense in the beginning, but very commonly when we use the word practice, we think primarily of sitting meditation. So someone might ask another person, how's your practice going? And the person may answer, it's going well. I'm sitting every day. 
right? And that has a certain degree of validity, but it can miss that broader sense. And again, as we mature, as we deepen in practice, there can be that uh, strong wish, a strong longing to have the mindfulness, the compassion, the wisdom be more there in all the parts of our lives. I think there's a deep longing and maybe you even feel an aliveness when you when you hear that. The Tibetan teacher Shabkar from the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century says, let your life and practice be one. And so we have to be careful of, of that more narrow sense of practice. And that's, I think, one one of the dangers there are a lot of benefits of the movement to have more mindfulness in the world and society. Sometimes it gets framed very narrowly, sit for 10 minutes. And again, that's valuable in the beginning, but if it, if it is limited by that, it's not sometimes so helpful. And we can think I'm being spiritual when we haven't connected it with the rest of our lives. And there, there are also broad tendencies in the society to limit what we might call our spirituality to our private time or to Sunday mornings or to the weekend, right? I think there are strong tendencies in the larger culture that way, partly because of busyness for a lot of different reasons. It's something I've been interested in. And so what I'm pointing to is something that for me is actually very exciting. It's actually a very broadened sense of what awakening means, that we can awaken in all these different areas. And it really also points to the need for, uh, I think, for contemporary ways of understanding practice in all these different areas that uh, aren't always clarified in the traditional teachings. How do we awaken in relationships, in work, in social action, and so forth? So. Again, listen for what has resonance for you. Listen for what has meaning. So today I want to go into three areas that are particularly powerful for deepening daily life practice. That really complements what I went into uh, last time. I want to talk about the importance of mindfulness of the body, number one. Number two, I want to talk about the value of focusing on working with difficult situations and reactivity in the mind. And thirdly, I want to talk about the value of pausing and setting intentions. That's what we just did in our listening to announcements or before the break. We, we worked with intentions and pausing and even right now, let me invite you during the rest of the talk and discussion, try to be aware and present in whatever way works for you and set your intention right now to do that. So these are the three areas that I'll go into and then we'll have some discussion and can, and can share. And Christina reminded me, we were talking before, that it could be helpful to mention a little bit about my own kind of ongoing retreat that I was, uh, as I often do, planning to be on retreat for about a month in the month of March. And I was at Spirit Rock at the end of February. Spirit Rock shut down mid-March. Uh, because of the local uh, need to shelter in place because of the virus. And I came home and had a kind of modified retreat, but I was still doing about nine hours a day of formal practice. So it was something like a residential retreat, but I was also shopping and connecting with friends and family some and listening to the news, but still practice was very strong. And then at the end of March, and I was uh, also doing this very closely connected with a, a friend who was doing the same thing, and we would talk every two days. And then at the end of March, we both decided to continue 
we both had some responsibilities, but we decided to continue our retreats. And the short version is I've been finding ways to have about four to five hours of formal practice a day, trying to bring awareness into the flow of the rest of the day while also doing some teaching like now, um, working with people one-on-one, -on -one, shopping, being some with friends and family and so forth. And it's really shifted my whole sense of daily life practice. It's one of the motivations for talking about this area um, in this uh, short series that I'm doing. And so it's really, for me, revolutionized uh, how I approach daily life. And it's given way more of a sense for me personally, that level of formal practice has really helped to have much more a sense of awareness during the whole rest of the day. Because we get busy, don't we? You know, even if you're retired, does anyone get busy when you're retired? How many people find busyness is an issue? Okay, I see most of the hands going up, yeah. So that's my own story. So, so I want to talk about these three areas, and they're also relevant, really, for all three of the areas I mentioned. So mindfulness of the body, for example, is something we can deepen in our formal practice by being more aware of the body and learning better how to connect with the body. It also is a major way that we bring mindfulness and awareness into activities, into uh, walking into doing the dishes and so forth. And it's also something that we can bring into our, our speaking our, and even our, our work, our service and so forth. So first of all, it's important to remember that, you know, in terms of mindfulness of the body, that it's not easy. You know, uh, most of us are in a kind of society or culture that is um, often very conceptual, very cerebral. I think that's probably true. Is that true even of uh, our friends from uh, uh, Mexico and Poland, right? Is that true? I can see some of you, if you raise your hand, if that's true, even where you live, if even if, you know, I think so it's very widespread uh, across the globe you know, especially with uh, our various electronic devices. So we get very busy. We also get certain, dis we get disembodied to a certain extent. There's a line from one of the short stories of the uh, Irish uh, writer, James Joyce. And the story begins by him saying, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Anyone live a short distance from your body? <laughs> right? Very common, right? That we are often not aware. Uh, a lot of us, we're on the computer, we're doing something conceptual. And of course, those can be beneficial, but we often aren't so aware. And yet, so mindfulness of the body becomes a very central learning. It was probably when I was first meditating, it was right at the heart of my practice, coming back in a way to my body. And I was not aware of my body personally, even though I was very physical. Was I was actually a competitive athlete for 10 years. I was a competitive swimmer, but I'm still not aware of my body. Not that aware of my body. Maybe I didn't want to be during the, all the practices. I don't know. But I think it was more because I was thinking all the time and just more, more cerebral. So training and mindfulness of the body is something that we, that many of us do first in meditation, where we learn how to be present with the breath. We learn how to literally come back to our senses. Again, for me, like for probably for many of you, one of the revelations of meditation was going and actually looking at a tree and being able to have one's senses be not so full of thoughts. How many have had that experience as one of the learnings from meditation? You know, that you can be with your senses, we can be with our senses more directly. We can taste food in a different way. We can be with a sunset in a different way. 
a lot of that comes from grounding in the body. So this is something we can do in our formal meditation. We can do that when we simply come back to the breath. We can also sometimes just be generally with the body. We can do that in walking meditation. We can do that in various activities. And this was um, what the Buddha taught, for example, in the first foundation of mindfulness. Uh, in the text that we have, there's mindfulness of breathing as a core practice to develop mindfulness of the body. Also mindfulness during activities. You know that uh, uh, this is from this is from the text from 2,600 years ago. A practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending the limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing one's clothes, who acts in full awareness when eating, drink, drinking, consuming food, and tasting who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So these are some of the ways we practice. And again, a lot of it will connect with intention, uh, which you know is gonna, again, interweave with everything I'm saying to have intention. And so, again, listen, if for some of you, this, coming back to the body, training in the body is something that resonates. This can be a major focus. How can I be aware of my body? And we can again train through walking meditation. We can train through sitting meditation and we can try to bring it into an activity. And again, when we, when we do daily life practice, we don't want to be too ambitious. Just do one or two things. Take as a goal to have mindfulness of the body, every time you take a walk. Do that for a week, that can have a major shift, you know. Um, find different ways to come back to the body. Uh, you might again take more walks, take short little walks after a meal, for example. Uh, another way to have mindfulness of the body is to have mindfulness during eating. Be mindful of the taste, you can do that. For, for maybe one meal a day, just focus on mindfulness of tasting, mindfulness of smelling. You know, so uh, can be to have a body practice as many of us have, uh, yoga or qigong. How many of you have a regular body practice? That's great. So when you do the body practice, yoga, qigong, uh, some other body practice, really say, let me be present to my body rather than just use it as time to think, you know, or we used to. I know when I did uh, yoga classes, uh, I would sometimes, I wouldn't spend my time being aware of my body. I would spend my time comparing how I was doing yoga as related to others. Anyone ever done that? Okay, just a few. I'm one of the few people who do that. So, um, but in any case, you get the point that mindfulness of the body can be so, so central. Uh, I remember uh, talking with uh, my friend and colleague, John Travis, who was for four years, he was really a teacher for me, a mentor. And I was talking with him one day about my practice and I was complaining. I was saying, you know, all those people who live in monasteries, they have so much support, right? And they, you know, they're reminded all day long to be present. And so I was saying, it's hard. It's hard to remember to be aware. And John's answer to me was, let your body be your monastery. In other words, let awareness of the body be the equivalent of being in a monastery. It's always there, the body. In a similar way, the great Thai teacher, Achan Moon said, in all your investigations, never let your mind depart from your body. So mindfulness of the body is such a central area. And it can, when we deepen it, and we can do so in a lot of different ways, and we can do so over time. It can take time to do that, but very, very central.
So hopefully that can resonate and we can find some way to have more mindfulness of the body play such a central role in deepening our practice in all these different areas, formal practice, informal practice, in our work, service, speaking. The second area I wanted to talk about is to talk about how we can take our challenges and difficulties and particular the way that our minds uh, and bodies and hearts are reactive as a central way to deepen in daily life. This is not probably a beginning level of practice necessarily. Sometimes we need in the beginning just to have a little more peace, a little more quiet, establish a regular meditation. So that could be most important. At a certain point, it's very crucial for us to get interested in ways that we lose it. And for people who are not native English speakers, losing it is kind of slang. And it means getting interested in times that we are upset, have difficult emotions, maybe get angry or sad, have grief, or uh, I use the word reactive to mean all the times that we want to push away something, another person, an experience, and so forth. But the idea is we get interested in experiences which are challenging for us, which are difficult. Practice can really accelerate when we're interested in our difficulties rather than just taking them to be problems that we want to go away as soon as possible. And I should say that it's important to that the ways that we can learn with difficulties is when the difficulties are in the workable range. And so a very crucial capacity right at the beginning of doing this, when we look at a difficult mind state or body state or a difficult experience, it's very helpful to give it a numerical rating from one to 10 and clarify how difficult it is. With 10, this is like the Olympic diving scale, with nine or 10 being the most difficult, often the most intense. And the difficulties that are workable are probably gonna be in the middle range. The nines or tens may be too much for us. And then we do different things. So the places where we can really learn from our difficulties and our challenges, I think are more in the middle range. So having that uh, understanding of the level of the difficulty or challenge, I think is crucial. Very, very important. And then we can actually take a difficulty as an opportunity for learning, which is changes everything. Again, a Tibetan phrase in one of the uh, Lojong teachings, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Put that on your refrigerator. Or put that on your, you know, make a tattoo out of that. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. It's so, it's so central, right? So a little more detail on the notion of reactivity. This is something that we can work with. In uh, Buddhist teachings, in Buddhist teachings and the teachings of the Buddha, working with reactivity is right at the central of our, center of our practice. And it's understood that reactivity can occur in two main ways. And I'm using reactivity as a way that I like to translate dukkha. You may remember that the Buddha says I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And it's usually translated as suffering. And I like reactivity a little bit better for two main reasons, uh, even though it's not a literal translation, but it actually gets at the experience and the center of our practice, I believe a little bit better than using a word like suffering. For one thing, uh, suffering in English at least, is not always clearly distinguished from what's painful or what's unpleasant. And so when we say, get rid of suffering, what do we mean? We're not trying to get rid of the unpleasant. The unpleasant is part of life. What's painful is part of life. So unless we have a very precise technical definition of suffering, it can be confusing to think of going beyond suffering. 
we're not going beyond pain, we're not going beyond the unpleasant, but rather we're learning a more skillful way of being with the painful or being with the unpleasant. The other reason why I like to use the word reactivity is that the Buddha was clearly talking about both the pushing away of the unpleasant and the grabbing hold of the pleasant. And those are two forms of reactivity. When we just use the word suffering, we forget about the grasping after the pleasant because we're trying to end that as well. We're trying actually to end dukkha as reactivity. And we can see this teaching a little more precisely in one of the core teachings, the teaching of dependent origination, which I'll give very, very briefly. The Buddha basically said, with every moment of experience, there is contact through one of our senses. We see something, we hear something, someone says something, uh, I smell something, I have this kind of thought. And he said that every one of those experiences is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. About 99% of our experiences are neutral. Some of them, though, are pleasant or unpleasant. We'd like to focus on those. What the Buddha said was, when we're not aware, and when we have a background of ignorance, when we have the experience of something pleasant, we will tend to grab hold of it. We will tend to want it and grab hold. When we have the experience of the unpleasant, and we're not aware, we're not mindful, and we have a background of ignorance, we will tend to push away the unpleasant. We will tend to not want it and then push it away. Again, we can do that at the bodily level when we simply instinctively want to, uh, I have an unpleasant sensation when I'm sitting and I just said, I just say to myself, oh no. And we, we don't investigate what the unpleasant is or we have an unpleasant interaction with someone else. Someone says something nasty to me or mean and I just instantly react back. So what we're looking for, what this teaching is pointing to, is to move away from reactivity towards being able to be responsive when something happens that's pleasant or unpleasant. Another way of talking about it is we're trying to not be compulsive, not be driven by the pleasant and the unpleasant, but have basically freedom and the ability to respond skillfully and wisely. For me, this is the complete heart of this whole 2,600-year-old tradition. It's what I just said, is to transform reactivity into responsiveness and freedom. That's it. As is said in the Jewish tradition, everything else is just commentary, right? This is the heart of our practice and all of our practice is pointing towards that. And so for us to focus on moments when we're reactive can be a, a powerful way to deepen practice. We, so we do this in our formal meditation. So what that means is we can set the intention at the beginning of a sitting, let me be aware when there's something unpleasant, a body sensation, a thought, an emotion, let me be aware when there's something pleasant, each of those areas. And let me notice how my mind and body and emotions tend to react or not. Let me study them. Let me be, and again, the very key to know that we're primarily learn when things are in the middle range in terms of difficulty. We don't learn so much when things are really difficult. There's a, there's a learning theory, which is kind of neat, which says there's the comfort zone, there's the discomfort zone, and there's the panic or overwhelm zone. Guess where we learn? Guess where we learn, folks? It's not the comfort zone. Sorry for the bad news. It's not the comfort zone. We learn the most in the discomfort zone. Sorry. 
This is this is how reality seems to present itself. Have you noticed that? Anyone raise your hand and say, I find that also? Yeah, there's a there's some truth to that, right? And so in our meditation, we can uh, actually set an intention to be interested in when a moment that's uh, unpleasant occurs or pleasant. And again, we're interested in learning from the ones that are not very difficult. I can learn from when my shoulder hurts a little bit, but it's not causing more damage. It's just happening. And I can just be with the unpleasant sensations, notice them and watch my mind saying, I don't like this. This is stupid. I'm sitting here in meditation with my shoulder hurting. Why am I doing this? Anyone ever had that occur? So this is actually, though, how we learn. We want to investigate the experience of pleasant and unpleasant. We can do the same maybe just when we're eating. Study pleasant experiences in eating and watch if there's a tendency to grasp. You know, I want more. I want more of that, even though I'm full. I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, but these, these are ways that we can learn, that we can investigate the pleasant and the unpleasant. And we can do that uh, in our meditations. We can do that in our daily flow of our life. We can do that when we talk to people and just notice how that's occurring, right? And uh, it's a really, like I say, I think this is right at the center of our practice and finding ways to work with what's challenging or difficult in all these different areas. And I could say a lot more. I sometimes teach, for example, three-day retreats on how we work skillfully with conflict. That's kind of a subset of this whole area. And we need special instruction, I think, to be skillful with interpersonal or social conflict, right? But it's really the, the core principle is the same. It's to be responsive rather than reactive. Actually, I think when you look to even the area of social action, I like to interpret the nonviolence of Gandhi and King, Dorothy Day and others as following exactly the same principle. We have received pain. We have received oppression. We will firmly and skillfully respond to what's happening, but we will not, as it were, do so reactively as much as possible. You know, for King, it was to come out of love. It's a very high bar, but I think it's important to see the continuity that this can even be a principle which guides our interpersonal lives, guides our working with conflicts, and guides even social change. You know, so it's basically saying, let me respond to what's difficult out of freedom. Because reactivity is not free. And so it means we have to work through and work with reactivity. And I'll just mention a few other supports for that. One of them is if we're actually working with a certain amount of difficult things, it's very helpful to have the support of bringing in the kind heart, loving kindness, compassion. So if there's a certain amount in your practice of being with difficult states, difficult emotions, reactivity, then I would really strongly suggest bringing in uh, the qualities of kindness, loving kindness, compassion, even something like forgiveness. In other words, heart practices can play a very central role. Mindfulness of the body can also be very, very crucial because we want to see how reactivity appears in the body. And sometimes that can help us to move away from being caught in a story, in a storyline. I think we all know how we get very often caught up in a story, you know, a narrative, that person did that, you know, that person's this or that, or I'm this or that. And one of the ways of uh, working with that is to actually go into the body and feel what's there separate from the story. So that's a whole other area. I'm going to go into more detail on that on August 8th, like a whole day's worth on that. But that's the beginning. It's something that I would invite us, if we want to, 
If we feel called in this way, remember I'm asking us to see what calls you as a way to deepen your practice. And then the last area I wanted to bring in that is actually a very central area. We've already explored it some. It's the practice of working with pauses and setting intentions and seeing if we can do that a number of times during the day. You know, we've already done it three or four times uh, in our session here, but it's really just stopping. You know, there's so much momentum. You know, I find myself, even though I don't have, uh, you know, a huge amount happening, there's still a habit of being busy and getting to the next thing. Anyone notice, anyone relate to that? Just the habit of doing that. And so pausing is really crucial. I find myself saying um, sometimes a few times during the day, no rush. Intellectually, I know there's not a need for rush, but it's in the body in some way. It's in the habit energy. And so pausing is a great tool. Pause, say no rush, and set your intention for the next five minutes, the next 10 minutes. Wonderful practice. Setting intentions is very good if we're about to have a, a discussion with someone, especially a difficult one. Set your intention. Set your intention for being aware during a meal, for taking a walk. Set the intention at the beginning of a sitting. Very, very crucial practice. And just getting in the habit of doing that can be really, really helpful. So I think I'm going to end just in a moment. Let me see. Um, yeah, let me just end by inviting us to take a moment to go inside. And what has life for you, again, in terms of deepening your daily life practice? It might be one of those ways of deepening I mentioned near the beginning or mentioned last week. It may be something I mentioned uh, today. Another way of saying it, what's alive for you in your practice? I'll just take a few moments now. And then see if you'd like to set an intention to maybe follow what's alive for you for the next week and see if that's there for you and set an intention for the next week of practice because we'll come back and look further at this theme next week. And I'll take us into some further areas. So take a moment, what's my intention for the next week? if this speaks to you. And then lastly, What will help you remember your intention tomorrow? So again, maybe we write our intention on the refrigerator or on a sheet of paper or whatever helps you. So let's open things up now and we have a we have a nice chunk of time for discussion. Uh, could be sharing something from the last week. If you explored some area, it could be asking a question. It could be uh, mm, speaking about what is life for you. Could be any of those. So again, we can 
work, uh, we have to work with the raise hand function under participants or send a question in the chat to Christina and Christina will uh, uh, let me know who uh, would be the next person to speak. Okay, thanks. Do we have anyone, Christina, who would like to speak? Not yet. Okay. I encourage uh, half-baked questions <laughs> and ones that might seem, what, dumb. Okay. Okay, here we have one. Uh, Christopher, it looks like. Is Christopher next? Christopher, would you like to unmute? Yeah, trying. Sorry, still a little new at this whole Zoom thing. No, you got it. Hi. You're good. I'm Chris, everyone. Uh, so as someone who is kind of newer to meditation, um, the idea of Buddhism and just wisdom traditions, is there any advice or like books I can read? Because I'm still very interested in learning more. But I mean, I know a lot. I don't know a lot. But I mean, I know enough to get me started. I just wanted to know if there's any, I don't know, books I should be reading or I don't know, keep attending these online offerings. Just yeah. Yeah. Would be great. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. And where, where, where are you? Uh, uh, where are you speaking from? What, what location? Uh, you have to unmute. Yeah. You're, you're still muted. Sorry. Okay, uh, still muted. Okay, I think I'll just add, add, uh, respond to the question. Then it looks like you're also, the screen's frozen, so it might be a technical problem. Um, yeah, uh, on my website, uh, I think donaldrothberg.org, I have a resource list which gives readings on Buddhism and Buddhist meditation. And I have, uh, it, it's uh, probably the equivalent of two pages. And I have uh, items on that list starred, which are good beginning readings. Yeah, so maybe look there and, uh, and just see which of them appeal to you. Maybe you can go online and look for a, look for a link. And also you should know about the website dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R, maseed.org. All the talks from our Wednesday gatherings are on the website. And uh, you could just go and listen to different teachers and could, could introduce things. But I think this is a very good way of going further. And then, yeah, some of the reading, listening to talks, talking with friends uh, would be great. Thanks, Chris. I'd like to invite Marsha to unmute. Am I unmuted? You are. Um, I don't have a question really, Donald, but I, I just want to say as a somewhat experienced but beginner meditator, I, I really appreciated um, you talking about reactivity as a core of it all. Yeah. And I also really appreciated you talking about the middle range issue. Yeah. Because um, I had a couple of those things already today, and I was able to really, which I didn't choose to react to in action, but that gave me a lot of, uh, would be very good for me to uh, practice with and give considerations. So I just found the talk incredibly helpful today. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marsha. And I think that last point you made, I think, is something that generally teachers have become more knowledgeable about in the last 10 years that uh, I think partly there is more awareness of trauma, there's more awareness of difficulties and uh, sometimes people, and of course everyone wants to uh, work with and transform and get rid of their level nines and tens, right? And, uh, but 
is actually the learning occurs more in the middle range. And I think we're more savvy if someone's going through that level of, of experience, it's often actually pretty hard to be mindful. And so people can, we've actually had experiences, people are on retreat and they're mm -hmm. going through really hard experiences. And sometimes teachers have just said, stay with it, but they're actually not really with it. They're just being, for example, taken over by trauma and it's not actually helpful. It's, it's actually re-traumatizing. So I think that guidance on knowing the level of difficulty is really crucial, even though we deeply want to, you know, deal with the nines and tens. <laughs> so. Thanks. Donald, we have Sonia, who's okay. got a question. Great. Okay, let's see. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So, um, in regards to conflict or misunderstanding, um, I am intimately connected to a Muslim family um, for the past three and a half years. And I was very involved with the family, with the children, um, became like a grandmother to them. And then when the virus hit, it brought a level of um, a conflict to our relationship because their cultural beliefs are so different from mine in terms of how to stay safe. And yeah. they pretty much believe, you know, that God will protect them. And so they're out and about living their lives as though the virus doesn't exist and it's been so challenging for me to find the middle ground because i want to remain connected through love that's yeah. my intention let me find a way to stay connected to the family through love it had manifest on a day-to-day -day basis keeps shifting you know yeah and it's been just so challenging to find the middle ground yeah yeah Thank, thank you, Sonia, for sharing that. Would you say that's up at around a nine or a ten? It is ten. <laughs> okay. Because it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it really had the possibility to um, for them to disconnect from me. Yeah. And I kept trying to loop them in through my intention is love. How can I still connect in a way that's safe for me and honors your beliefs? So I keep finding trying to negotiate. Wow. How, how does that look like today? Yeah. But I don't lose my connection to them because they need me as much as I do. And so I'm struggling trying to find the middle way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like to me, like you actually have the basics for uh, responding rather than reacting, mm. which, which are in, you know, and you've said uh, it's in, uh, you know, your own safety mm -hmm. is crucial. Yeah. You, you don't you don't compromise your safety. Right. 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 And then uh, with and then you come you come out of safety and love. Yes. And that sound that doesn't mean it's easy, but I think that there's mm -hmm. there's clarity there. OK. Yeah. And, I guess it's just how they perceive it. You know, the perception is you no longer love us and, and you're, you're afraid of us. You think we're infected. And I keep saying no, I love you. I just want to keep you safe and me safe. And this is the way in which I know how to do it yeah. and honor you and honor me. So it gets misinterpreted by the family. And so they react. They may be reactive. Yeah, because, yeah, and it may be hard to accept that you have a, a, a different view yes. of what's happening. Yes. But, you know, one, you know, one way to, uh, uh, you know, and, and again, uh, this is a this is a difficult conversation. Yeah. And and you can only do your best. You can't, yeah. uh, you know, and and okay. it sounds to me like like you are some for some people to say, you know, uh, this is really important for me. Two things are important for me, my own safety and health and really being connected with you in care and love. And I've said that to them. And said that. And then that being said, we have we have different views of mm -hmm. what's happening. And I'm wondering if it's possible for that to be okay for you. Yeah. Something like that. And it might yeah. not be. I know. Yeah. And and 
And but but that I, my sense is that could be okay for you if it's not okay. Yeah, because I'm doing the best I can. You're doing the best you can. Yeah. And so, again, it would depend a lot on their ability to communicate and be okay with there being different views. Yeah. You'll have to maybe explore that some more, or maybe you've done all you can. Okay. Yeah. And remember, it's a 10. Yes, a 10. And you can, with the same issues, sometimes you can, you know, like differences of views, you can also continue practicing where there are fives or sixes or sevens. Yeah. Because the yeah. dynamics and the skills are the same, but so you know how do you how do you work uh, with differences of views where it's more in, in the middle range of difficulty? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Sonia. Do we have time for one more, Donald? We, we do. Yeah. Great, Jackie. Would you like to speak? Yes, I would. Can you hear me? Okay. Perfect. Great. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I'm really curious about how to deal with those nines or tens when oh. the sensations are um, trauma or things that are really challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you walk us through that a little bit and, and what's the practice of perhaps getting better at the five, six, and sevens? Yeah. Um, well, uh, one, one thing is uh, that one prepares especially for the nines or tens by practicing with the fours and fives and sixes. And so that that's really the core. In other words, of course, sometimes we're given nines or tens uh, and uh, they're they they're given to us even though we haven't done enough work on the four and fives and sixes so that's how reality works but uh but ideally in the long run we practice a lot where it's in the workable range in other words we do training we do a lot of training to be uh capable of working with the nines or tens that's one answer you know i'm, I'm going to give a few a few aspects of the answer uh so but that i think is the most central one we practice where it's workable and we really develop our ability, let's say, to work with differences of views, to work with conflict, to work with difficult emotions, to work with uh, powerful judgmental energy, right? We work, we develop the capacity to work with all these different things to open our hearts up even when there's conflict, right? All those things we, we train uh, with the easier ones. Uh, that being said, what do we do with the nines or tens when they're there? Or they just come to us. It's going to be different with different kinds of nines or tens. With trauma, for example, <clears throat> we can actually do focused uh, trauma work, maybe with a professional or uh, and that, that goes for some nines and tens where the roots of it are in our own individual experience. We may want to wor actually work with a professional. If I have residues of trauma that take me into a nine or a 10 with certain kinds of stimuli, um, it may be limited what I can do on my own without having had further guidance, instruction, mentoring. So sometimes with some of the nines or tens, we'd want to work in a focused way with a teacher, a mentor, a therapist, a professional, right? So that's um, sometimes sometimes going to be the case. Um, some of what we do with nines or tens, uh, when we're very uh, activated, we learn at the body bodily level how to deactivate when the when those very strong experiences come. That's part of uh, the repertoire as well that we can learn. For example, and this is, uh, we can learn, for example, uh, to when we're really caught, we're triggered and we're caught by a negative narrative that's just repeating over and over in our minds, right? There are ways we can work with that to have that be less prominent. A lot of it is going into the body. We can do something physical, uh, very vigorous physical activity sometimes is helpful. We can, in the moment, bring the attention maybe to the hands and feet, 
right? Uh, we could, uh, uh, you know, if it occurs in meditation, we can open the eyes, bring the attention to something pleasing, beautiful, right? That can be a way of working with it. So um, those are some things to do in the moment. We want to, when we have something a nine or a 10 and it's too much for us in the moment, we want to shift our attention away from it, actually, not be caught by the nine or a 10. Uh, some of the heart practices can also be very, very helpful. If we have loving kindness or compassion developed to a pretty high degree, we can bring those into the moment. Actually, the Buddha in, in one of the traditions is reputed to have said that uh, loving kindness is an antidote to fear, even very strong fear. So the loving kindness would have to be pretty well developed to do that. But I've I've worked with that in my own experience. I sometimes some of you know the story. I sometimes tell the story of having been camping. And uh, uh, well, I, I was at a retreat where I was giving a camping space I thought was very nice. They had told me uh, oh, yeah, a bear came through here a week ago. And uh, I said, well, it's a really nice place. And they said, we took the bear 50 miles away, so it's it's not here now. And I uh, I said, okay, I'll be there. And then uh, after the uh, first day was over, I went and I prepared my campsite. It was about a quarter of a mile from anyone else. And I lay down and I started thinking about the bear. And pretty soon it was a nine or a 10, <laughs> you know, and it was like, you know, how it is. The bear is coming. The bear is coming. Every, you know, little sound on the ground, every little twig, you know, that some squirrel was on was a sign of the bear's imminent approach. <laughs> right. And so uh, at that point, I actually and I noticed it. It took me a while to notice what was happening. So it was a nine or a 10. And I was really caught in bear fear um, for 15, 20 minutes. And then I said, it's time for loving kindness. And I did loving kindness for the next three hours. <laughs> and it took that apparently to calm me down. And then at three after three hours, and some things maybe not take so long, after three hours, I was calmed down. I went to sleep. I didn't think about the bear anymore. And I stayed in that spot and didn't think about the bear for the rest of the retreat. I believe maybe I thought about it some, but not too much. So anyway, that can be uh, that can be something we work with as well to sometimes the heart practices can be really, really helpful. So I'm sure we each have stories, but that's a good question. Yeah, so what you know, we want to practice with the uh, middle range of difficulties. But what do we do if the really hard stuff happens? So uh, if it's really hard and we're caught, the basic answer is try to get out of it. You can do that at a bodily level. Some of the things I mentioned, you can do it with a meditation sometimes, like I just mentioned with uh, loving kindness. Uh, we can sometimes find ways to get ourselves out of really locked in storylines that can get really hard and you know, maybe you're very judgmental or nasty or just keep anxiety going. So those are a few things that could be the subject of a whole day or at least another class. So um, what I want to do for next time is to go into some more fundamental areas. So what I want to invite for next time, how many of you would like in some way to work with what's alive for you in daily life practice? Could be formal practice informal. How many of you would like to do that? So that's great. So once you set your intention right now for what you'll do in the next week, again, we're just looking for one or two things. It could be something that you did last week, something I mentioned, could be mindfulness of the body, working with reactivity, pauses, intentions, working with nines or tens, whatever. So see what that is. Take a moment.
again, it's helpful to ask, what will help me keep remembering my intention during the week? So I'll close again by remembering that quotation from Shabkar, the Tibetan great uh, meditator and teacher, let your life and practice be one. And then I'll, I'll finish with the uh, dedication of merit, which is really remembering intention that our practice is very much for ourselves, but it's also very much for others. And may the benefits of the morning and our practice be there for us, be there for people in our own circles, and then be there as well beyond those circles into the wider world. May, may the horizon of our practice ultimately be the benefit of others, ultimately all others. So thank you, everyone. Thanks so much. And Christina, I'll ask you to unmute everyone. And I like this part like a lot. This, this is where we can uh, say goodbye and say and just say hi to each other. So thanks, everyone. And hopefully see everyone next week. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Bye. Bye. everyone. Bye. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. May things continue well. Really wonderful class. Bye-bye. Uh, <laughs> okay. Bye. Till next time, everyone. Bye, Donald. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It could be an extension of an office in that alcove. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.